Hello. How many of you, when you hear songs, you think you know the meaning of the lyrics? No one knows the meaning of the lyrics. I, I didn't say you actually do. I said you think you know the meaning of the lyrics, right? So let's see a show of hands. You, any, anyone here study lyrics? You're like, what is that? What's he saying? What does he mean? Anyone try to do that? Look at lyrics and try to figure them out. So no matter what you think about songs, whenever you look at a band's name or a band's words to their song, almost nothing ever makes sense. And what does Imagine Dragons even mean? Um, Coldplay? What does that mean? Um, so the names of their songs, the names of the band don't always make sense, but also the words of the song don't always make sense. But sometimes, very often, there's these little catchphrases that are in the song that people connect to. And you're not really sure what the rest of the song means, but you connect to that one little phrase and you just connect to it and think, yeah, that's, that's what I think about life. And so one of the phrases in this song that I think stands out to me is the phrase that you hear over and over again, and it's, I'm never changing who I am. And so I believe that musicians are like today's philosophers. There aren't many people reading philosophy books today, but lots of people buy music and lots of philosophy and ideas on how to live life are in music, and people connect to those ideas, and you like the song, and so you think people can often adopt ideas that are in songs, whether consciously or subconsciously. That's just kind of how we're drawn to music, isn't it? And so what happens, though, when you look at a song like this and you hear the phrase, I'm never changing who I am, this becomes a philosophy, an idea that people start to live their life by. I'm not saying that the song like convinced them to live that way. I'm not saying they were like walking with Jesus and heard the song and were like, okay, forget that, I'm living for myself, you know. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that at times we, they connect to that, that lyric and think, that is, that, that's how I want to live my life. I'm not going to change who I am. I'm not going to change my identity. And so keep those lyrics in the back of your mind for now. We're going to bring that uh, up again at the end of today's talk. But um, for the series in Colossians, we have, I've got a lot of the seniors in mind for this series in Colossians, but it still applies to everyone in the room. It's just that when I was putting the series together, I thought specifically about our seniors, our upperclassmen that are going to be heading off to college or whatever else they're going to be doing in the coming months. And so turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I do want to give you some background, though, once again, we said last week, we showed you a map last week, and we showed you some history of Colossians, the book of Colossians, and here's the, the big picture. Uh, Paul was in Ephesus for three years. While he was in Ephesus, a man named Epaphras traveled from Colossae over there to the east, traveled from Colossae to Ephesus. He heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus. Epaphras became a Christian in Ephesus, and then Epaphras goes back to Colossae, his hometown, a pagan city where there were virtually no Christians, and Epaphras did the unthinkable. He walked into a pagan culture, a pagan city, as a Christian, and began sharing the gospel with people. And many people came to know Jesus as a result. And so now there's this church in Colossae. And Paul, Paul's now in Rome, Paul's now in Rome, and Paul hears about the church in Colossae, he hears that they're a young church, he hears that he's excited that they're a young church, he's excited that the gospel has gone to a place that even he hasn't been to yet, 
I mean, how exciting is that to know, to hear that Epaphras, one of his followers, has planted a church and is starting churches in another city. How encouraging would that be? But it would also be scary, right? It'd be scary to think that, well, okay, I'm glad that Epaphras did that, but I'm not sure that what they're believing is the true and right gospel. So let me, as Paul, write this letter to the Colossians so I can make sure they're on track. They're not falling for secular philosophies and ideas. And this seniors in the room, if you're here and you didn't, go to, you didn't uh, stay out too late last night from prom, if you're, if you're, here, if you're here today, um, this is the key because you're going to have to do what Epaphras did. You're going to have to leave here and walk into a pagan place, most likely, where many people don't know Jesus, and you're going to have to live boldly just like Epaphras did. And my hope and my prayer is that you'll do what Epaphras did, that churches might start because of you, that people who don't know Christ will come to know Christ because of your witness. This is what we're hoping for and praying for, and this is why we're studying Colossians. Now, I will warn you that today's passage is going to make your head hurt just a little bit. So what I want to do starting off is just go ahead and stand up, and I'm going to have you guys read this together as a group. So go ahead and stand up. Yes, stand up again. Again? Yes. Colossians 1. Yes, yeah, someone said don't drink the Kool-Aid. Um, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And what I'm going to do, this passage is actually like a song. When, when you read it together, you'll see how it has this cadence to it, this rhythm to it. And um, I'm not going to have you sing it, don't worry. Uh, but I want you to say it together. Uh, because I think it's helpful to do that. So let's go ahead and start in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Go ahead and grab a seat. So these words might be hard to understand. The words you just read, listen, the words we just read might be difficult to understand. When you read them over and over again, you're going to see these words almost have like a transcendent quality to them. They're abstract and kind of out there, like Paul's head is in the clouds somewhere. But what he's trying to do, listen, listen, what he's trying to do here is he is trying to get people to understand how big and magnificent and transcendent and how huge Jesus really is. He's trying to get the Colossians to understand that when you're tempted to keep your mind on smaller things, the things of this world, he's trying to lift their mindset a bit, help them realize just how big and magnificent and transcendent and sometimes not even understandable Jesus really is. And so this is why he uses this lofty language in this passage. And so we are going to break it down here. Um, 
verse by verse, but when you see the thing in its entirety, because when, when you read that passage, and it's all about Jesus when you read that, it's hard to read that passage and think, ladies, yeah, my boyfriend, he's better than that when I read about Jesus. Or it's hard to read that passage and say, yeah, um, the things that I'm chasing in life, the insignificant things I'm chasing in life, yeah, the small things, God's creation, those things, it's hard to read that and say, yeah, those things are bigger and better than that. When you read that, it sort of lifts your mindset a bit to understand who this Jesus really is. And so look at me at verse 15. It says, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, there's some words in there that are confusing that we don't quite understand because it looks like he's saying that Jesus was a created being, right? It looks like he's saying, okay, Jesus was the firstborn, so we're all born. We, we, we have time and space. We are born in time and space, so we have a beginning and we have an end. Is he saying that Jesus was born in the sense that we're born? If he was saying that, I don't mean born like in Bethlehem. I mean like born before all creation. If he's really saying that Jesus had a beginning to him, then he really would be saying that Jesus is not God. But that's not what he's saying in this passage. When he says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, what he means is that Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is, um, he was here before anything else came. Before anything else began, Jesus was here. He was first, right? He also uses the word image of the invisible God. Now, the word image in the Greek is the word icon, which is where you think we get what American or English word. I just said American word. That didn't make any sense. English word, which is where we get what word? Icon. And what is an icon? It's something that you might have on your phone. Um that indicates, represents something else, right? You have icons on your computer. You click those icons. This is actually, there's a connection here. Jesus is the exact representation of God himself because he is God himself. He's God. So this, this verse 15 is a long way to say that Jesus is God. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, why didn't he just say that? Why don't you just say Jesus is God and leave it at that and leave out this lofty language? But I'm trying to tell you something. He's trying to lift your mindset above where it normally is and help you see that Jesus is transcendent. Jesus is huge. He's magnificent. And he is better and much bigger than the small things that we tend to worship. Because here's what's going to happen, especially those that are leaving here in a couple months to go off and graduate somewhere. Um, you run into a lot of teaching, and people are going to say a lot of things about Jesus. They'll say things like, yeah, Jesus was a prophet. He was a good man, but he wasn't God. That didn't make any sense. This verse says differently, and I would say it this way, that if Jesus wasn't God, then why did the Jews crucify him? Because the Jews crucified him because he claimed to forgive sin, and the Jews knew that only God can forgive sin. And Jesus stood behind his words, and he went to the cross for it. So if Jesus wasn't God, then why did the Jews crucify him? They crucified him because he said he could forgive sin. The Jews knew that only God can forgive sin. And so they crucified him for what they called blasphemy. 
Look at verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So how do we know he's God? We know he's God because all things were created by him. He couldn't have been a creation because everything was created by him. There are some cults out there, Jehovah's Witnesses being one of them, that will say that Jesus was created. They'll look at this verse and say, see, he was created. God the Father created him, and then, then they created the world together. That's what they'll say. But this verse, if you read on here, it says, no, everything was created by him. Jesus can't be God if he was a created being. And so this takes care, this takes care of a lot of those heresies that you might see in other religions. Also, when you leave here, what's really popular today, especially in universities, is the idea of pantheism. This is the idea that the creator and the creation are one and the same. People will say things like Mother Earth will refer to the, the world as if it is the creator. Like we've got to bow down to the world and the universe as if it is the creator and the creation all wrapped up in one. Now it is true, we need to respect and conserve and be conscious of what we do in our world, but we don't mix up the creation and the creator and say they are one and the same. That's called pantheism. Christianity teaches that there's the creation and there's the creator outside of the creation. He created everything, right? And that he rises above it and has authority and sovereignty over everything that he has created. But many people in the world that you're about to head into will say things like this. They'll say things like, I believe in a supreme being, or I believe in a energy that's out there somewhere in the universe that is responsible for the world that we see. A supreme being, supreme energy, just something out there that made all this happen. But there's no talk of a personal God, no talk of that we can know that who, this who this God is. It's just energy. It's just a, a vague, abstract being somewhere out there in the cosmos. In fact, one band member for Metallica said this in relation to this. He said, if you want my religious idea, I believe there is a supreme being, a supreme energy. It's like a big mesh of religions. And you're going to encounter this kind of thinking wherever you go when you leave this place. This, I would say this summarizes most people's view. Almost everyone believes in something beyond what we can see, but many people believe in just this supreme energy somewhere out there that we really can't understand or know personally. Christianity teaches the exact opposite. Christianity, Christianity teaches that there is a God, Jesus Christ, that you can know personally and have a relationship with, and that He is sovereign above and beyond the creation. The Creator and the creation are not one and the same but they are distinctly separate, and he rules sovereignly over his creation. This verse also says that not only did he create everything, but the very last part of the passage says it was created for him. Everything that was created was created for him, for Jesus. Now, what in the world does that mean? 
Think about this. If everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus, apply that truth to your dating life. If every single thing God has placed on this earth, including the male-female species, including the male-female relationship, apply that verse to your dating life. If everything he created was created by him and for him, meaning for his glory, for his honor, think about how that verse, that concept, applies to your dating life. How does it change the way that you see that relationship? How does it change the way that you see your future job? How does it change the way that you see your time in high school? How does it change the way that you see what college you go to? How does it change what, how you see the career that you choose? If you see everything on the face of the earth as being created by Jesus and for Jesus, for his glory, for his honor, you're going to approach everything that you do in life differently. You're going to ask questions like, how is this relationship bringing honor and glory to the God who gave it to me? Is this even a right relationship for me to be in? You're going to approach everything differently when you understand the idea that everything was created for Jesus, for his honor, for his glory. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul also says that the whole point of marriage is to give us a clear picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And when you and I understand that everything is created for him, everything else falls into place. Our culture teaches that life is about squeezing as much fun and pleasure and money, enjoyment out of life until you die. That's the whole point of life, many would say. And it's true that God has given us many gifts, but the gifts are not meant to replace him. The gifts are meant to point to him. And if you get those reversed, your whole life's going to get screwed up. If you don't understand that the gifts and blessings he has bestowed to us, those things are meant to point to him, not to replace him. Everything else in your life is going to get turned around and jacked up. And so if everything was created for him, how does that change how you approach everything, every aspect of your life? Look at verse 17. It says, and he is before all things, and in him hold, in him all things hold together. Another passage that you might look at and say, what in the world does that actually mean? So not only did Jesus create all things, and not only were, was, were all things created for him, but it says he is presently holding all things together. Currently. That means your entire body, every cell, every molecule, he is currently holding those things together. And you might say, you might look at your life and say, well, with all the suffering that we see in our world, it doesn't seem like Jesus is doing that great of a job at holding all things together. With all the things we see happening in our world, how can we say that Jesus is really holding all things together considering the stuff that I see in and around us? And I would say this to you. I would say, yes, there is suffering. There is suffering, but there isn't nearly the suffering that there could be. There isn't nearly the suffering that there could be in your life and in my life and on the earth that you and I inhabit. Now, it's true, whenever we have, whenever there's a hurricane or a tsunami, something tragic happens in our world, 
people always ask questions like, well, how can God allow this? How can a good God allow this kind of thing? But the real question is, why isn't this happening everywhere all the time? Right? Why, why isn't there like a hurricane every Thursday that just blows up the East Coast? Like, why isn't that happening? And I would say to you this, because he is, yes, there is suffering, and that's a whole different sermon, but he is holding all things together. He's holding all things together. I want to show you a picture of, this is Mars, and on the left is Mars, normal Mars, and on the right is Mars with a global storm. I watched a documentary on this about a month ago, and it was really interesting. They were talking about how Mars has these massive global storms sometimes, like dust storms. Like it, it engulfs the entire planet. This is why you can't see anything. You can't see the outlines of the landscape because the entire planet is in a global three-month storm. And they did this little parallel thing, like what if the exact same thing happened on Earth? And here's what they said. They said if, if the exact same kind of thing happened on Earth, here's what would happen. The sun will be blotted out for three months, causing the Earth's temperatures to plummet, possibly 60 degrees below zero. They also said that your, the atmospheric pressure would be so low that your blood would start to boil. There would be whirlwinds as high as Mount Everest all over the world. Tornadoes as tall as Everest all over the entire planet. And when you look at that and you think, man, like what, what's keeping that from happening here? Like what, what's keeping that from happening on earth on such a grand scale? And I would say this, it's because he holds all things together. There's a reason for that. He holds all things together. We also know that um, a while back, the, uh, the, the physicists of our world got really excited. You know when physicists get excited, something nerdy just happened. And so, um, it's really funny to watch them get emotional over these kind of things and actually shed a tear or two. But they discovered what's called the God Particle, which there's a book about this that came out a long time ago. But the God Particle, this is the God Particle. Listen, your bodies are made up of cells, which are made up of molecules, which are made up of atoms. Atoms are made up of what? Three things. Protons, neutrons, electrons. Those things are moving around really fast. And even those subatomic particles are made up of even smaller things. And as we get smaller and smaller and smaller, what they've discovered is we're just made up of space. Little tiny microscopic space. And no one has an answer for what makes sense of all this. And if I was in a class, I'd want to raise my hand and be like, I know, I know. Colossians, he holds all things together, right? I mean, there's no, it makes no sense how every little thing that's in our body just stays where it's supposed to go and something else is really interesting. We know that if someone drops an atomic bomb, it's basically they're splitting an atom. So they are splitting a, 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 an atomic particle and it causes such an energy release that thousands would die. And so my question would be, everyone's worried about North Korea and other places that have nuclear weapons, that have tyrants for leaders, and they're, they're threatening the world with these things, right? 
Everyone's concerned about what if North Korea gets a hold, or they already have them, but what if they use an atomic weapon or nuclear missile on somewhere else in the world? What's going to happen? Everyone's concerned about that. But no one's concerned, I don't think, of an atom exploding spontaneously on its own. Like, you don't walk down the hallway at your school, go into your third period class and think, man, I really hope that somebody's atom in their body doesn't explode in this place. Because that would be the end of everyone's life in a 10-mile radius. But the question is, why aren't those things happening? Why are those things not happening? And I would say this, it's he's holding all things together. There's no other reason except that Jesus is holding all things together. Look at verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross was not a peaceful event, but the cross brings us peace. The cross was not a just event, but the cross brings about justice. The cross was not a merciful event, at least not for Jesus, but the brutality of the cross brings about justice and mercy and peace in our lives brings peace with God, from God to us. And you're going to leave this place, and you're going to hear lots of theories on, well, yeah, Jesus isn't the only way. Jesus isn't the only truth. And the Bible's clear that he is the only one who can bring peace to mankind through the blood of his cross. He's the only God who has stepped into mankind and shed his own blood on our soil on our behalf. There's no other, that he, there's no other uh, philosophy or religion that even claims that. That even claims that. Look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. For us to appreciate what Christ has done, we have to remember who we were. For us to fully appreciate what Christ has done for us, you have to know and remember who you were before you came to know Jesus. Even if you were four years old, you've got to know who you were before Christ, and who you might be today if you did not know Him. This verse says we were alienated, we were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That is the definition of anyone who's unsaved. Anyone who's not a believer can put that definition next to their name. And so I want to go back to our song at the beginning. Musicians are like philosophers. Songs often have catchphrases that people latch on to, adopt, and, and live by those phrases. In the song, of course, we heard the phrase over and over again, I'm never changing who I am. And this is a philosophy that people live by. 
in our culture, isn't it? And, and what people will do is, now I'm not saying for a moment that you need to change who you are, like in the sense of, you know, you're tall, you're short. I mean, there's certain things we have no control over. And I'm not suggesting that we try to change those things. God made us how we are for, for certain reasons. And the same is true with your gifting in the body of Christ. But when people say this kind of phrase, what many of them mean is, I'm not changing anything about me. No matter what kind of destruction it causes in my own life, no matter what it causes other people, how it causes them to suffer. And so we will lump sin into that same category and say, I'm not changing who I am because this is who I am. If you have a problem with that, then deal with it. And I would say that completely opposes the gospel. Because even Christians will sometimes celebrate sin and say, you know what, this aspect of who I am, this is who I am. I'm not going to change who I am. You know, if they get into a relationship with somebody, eventually a marriage, and they realize the marriage is starting to change them for the better, because we all need changing, and the marriage is beginning to sanctify them and grow them towards Christ's likeness, some will say, you know what? I'm out. I'm done because I'm not changing who I am. This is who I am. I'm not going to change who I am. And what Paul says in this passage is that, yeah, this is who you used to be. This is what Christ offers you now. And so listen, Jesus saves you to change you. He saves you to change you. That's the point. You were created by Him and for Him, for His glory, for His honor. He created you so that in the hopes that you would come to know Him and that you would bring glory to Him, not glory to yourself. And He saves us, we hear are evil, so that He can present us as holy and blameless. And in verse 23... He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And if you're an upperclassman in the room, look at me. This is my hope for you. That is eventually as you leave this place, my hope is that you'd remain firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you would not shift. That you'd have a stable faith that you, faith that you would cling to the gospel. Cling to Jesus no matter what you encounter when you leave this place. That is my hope for you. That is my hope for you. And if you're not a believer this morning and you, you would not put yourself in the category of Christian yet, Christ's follower yet, my invitation to you this morning would be to put your faith and trust in Jesus and tell him that through prayer. Say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to believe in you. I want you to come into my life and change me in the way that Paul describes in this passage, because as a Christian, Jesus saves you to change you. Go ahead and have some discussion at your tables. If you need a discussion sheet, there's some extra ones on the top of the sound booth there at the back.